0: about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire.
1: Peace be with you. Friends, our three readings for this weekend tell us a great deal about the church. I want to draw a lesson from each one of them. Let's start with the first reading. It's from the 15th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, And it brings us right into the heart of a controversy that almost brought the early church to its knees. It almost shipwrecked the early church. There was a tension between tradition and novelty in the early church, if I can put it that way. All the first Christians were Jews raised according to the disciplines of the Jewish religion. Their minds formed according to Torah and the prophets. Jesus was a Jew who went up every year to the temple, who as a child was circumcised on the eighth day, who commented on the Torah in the synagogue. Furthermore, Jesus was recognized by these first believers as the fulfillment of Judaism, the culmination of God's promises to his people. Therefore, it was only natural that even those who believed in Jesus as the risen Son of God would want to continue to function as Jews. In fact, we hear in Luke's Gospel that the disciples after the ascension spent their days in the Jerusalem temple praising God. They were acting as good Jews. There's the tradition side, if you want. And yet, at the same time, Jesus clearly represented something New. Paul was the one who saw this most clearly. In light of the cross and resurrection, he said, we're no longer saved primarily by the works of the law. We're saved by our faith in Jesus Christ. Circumcision, dietary laws, particular practices which mark Jews as ethnically separate, These should now give way, Paul said, to a new universalism. In Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no man or woman. That's Paul. See how radical that was. For Jew of his time, the Jew-Gentile distinction was enormously important. For Paul, blithely to say, in Christ, that distinction's been erased, that was a very radical claim. That's the novelty of Christianity. And so the church fell into bickering and arguing. I always find this encouraging. For those who think that bickering and arguing are something that bedevils our church today and wouldn't it be great to go back to the golden age of long ago? Well, there never was a golden age. If by that you mean a time when there was no bickering or arguing, they were doing it right from the beginning. And this was the big issue in the first century. So, the elders decided to meet in Jerusalem to work things out. This came to be called, eventually, as the Council of Jerusalem. The first of the councils of the Church. There have been 20, all told, the latest being Vatican II. Many listening to me right now, it's in your own lifetime, Vatican II. Well, the very first one is being described here in the Acts of the Apostles. We hear a summary in our reading of what they decided. Listen, it is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us not to place on you any burden beyond these necessities namely, to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. Now, that can sound a little bit fussy but that was a huge concession. The early Christians decided they would no longer fuss about circumcision. That was a hugely important practice for ancient Jews. They would let fall to the side most of the dietary laws that strict Jews followed. What they were hanging on to here were some pretty essential things, the prohibition against idolatry being one, and that remains, of course, in place to this day, and they're coming out against unlawful marriage. But see, they were allowing far greater flexibility. Why? Why? So as to allow Gentiles to move into the family of Israel. See, that's Paul's vision. Paul convinced them of this. He saw, in light of Jesus risen from the dead, that the mission of Israel was now to draw all the world to the God of Israel. And so they determined to make that as easy as possible, to let the Gentiles come in, and they dropped much of their Jewish practice. Now you might say, well, isn't that mildly interesting ancient history? Uh Uh-uh, not if you're a Christian. Almost all of you listening to me, certainly I myself, are Christians because of this council, because of this decision? Think about that for a second. If they'd gone the other way, if they determined that all of the practices and all the rituals and laws of Judaism had to stay in place, Christianity might have devolved in short order into being just a sect of Judaism. It might never have moved out of its Palestinian homeland. That I'm speaking to you as an American of Irish extraction and I'm a priest of Yeshua Mashiach. I'm a priest of Jesus Christ. That's because of this council. It's because of this decision to allow Gentiles like me into the family of Israel. Okay. Did they fight about this? You bet they did. We get in the Acts of the Apostles a kind of you know, cleaned up version of it. Acts gives us only a hint of the tension and the controversy. It lasted all throughout Paul's lifetime. It lasted well beyond the time of Paul. See, councils invariably arise over issues that are so contested that they threaten the very life of the church. Now, go forward from this first council through the history of the church. Think of the next ecumenical council, that of Nicaea in the year 325. It was called to deal with the Arian challenge, Arius who said that Jesus is not really divine. Who they fought about that. They fought before, during, and after the Council of Nicaea. We stand up every Sunday and we announce the resolution of that when we say we believe that Jesus is God from God, light from light true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. We are repeating the words of the Council of Nicaea. Think of the Council of Constance that was called to resolve the crisis of the three popes. Think of the Council of Trent that was called to address the enormous challenge raised by Protestantism. Think of Vatican II which was called to address the challenges of the modern age. Friends, here's a most important lesson in regard to the church. In regard to all this bickering, disagreement, and controversy, they are nothing new in the life of the church. They have been there from the beginning. At times, they become so problematic and so disruptive that they have to be addressed. Hence the councils. How wonderful now to read about Council Number One. Read a history of the church looking at the 19 subsequent councils. It's a story of this ongoing conversation, this sometimes bickering and fighting church that has to resolve its problems. Now, who won at the First Council of Jerusalem? If you want to use our categories, I suppose you'd say the liberals won. What I mean by that is the forces of innovation won. It was traditionalists who were calling for all the Jewish practices. Then there were the uh, innovators like Paul. Well, okay, the innovators won at the First Council. Who won at Nicaea? Well, I suppose you'd say the conservatives did, because the innovators there were the Arians. They lost. The Conservatives won. Who won at the Council of Trends? I suppose you'd say the Conservatives, because the novelty at the time was Protestantism, and they came out against that. Who won at Vatican II? Well, I suppose you'd say the Liberals, because the innovators seemed to carry the day. Now, why am I putting it this way? In some ways, to get us beyond those silly categories. Not to look at it so much politically, I want you to see who wins at the council, at any council. It's often just a function of time, the issue, the question, and most importantly, what the Holy Spirit wants. Attend again to what the Acts of the Apostle says. Listen, it is the decision of the Holy Spirit and us. Isn't that wonderful? As they announce what they've uh, Decided, They say it's the decision of the Holy Spirit primarily. Now look at our gospel for today. Jesus promises at the Last Supper that he would send an advocate. He means the Holy Spirit who would guide us into all truth. And listen to this. Remind us of all that he told us. That's powerful, isn't it? Jesus comes, the incarnation of the Word, the Father's Word. But after Jesus' return to the Father, he and the Father will send this Spirit who will now live in the church, reminding the church of all that Jesus said. When will this happen? How will this happen? It'll happen up and down the centuries. It'll happen in the midst of our arguing and bickering. It'll happen as we struggle to resolve questions and challenges. The councils of the church, beginning with the Council of Jerusalem, coming all the way up to our own time, are these manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which is guiding and directing the church. That's lesson two. Here's lesson three. Don't get romantic about councils. That was a problem, I think, after Vatican II, in the years I was coming of age. People wanted the spirit of the council to endure. May we always have the excitement of a council. No, no, in my judgment. See, because the ultimate purpose of the church is not to debate its interior issues. Sometimes we have to do that. We had to do it in the first century. We had to do it over this Judaizing problem. We've had to do it, on the average, about once every hundred years to address issues that were so basic they have to be resolved. But the purpose of the church is not to debate about its inner life. The purpose of the church is to change the world. In our second reading, John the Visionary sees the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. What does he say? There is no temple in that city. He means the city itself has become a temple because God's Spirit has so fully invaded it. Friends, that's the purpose of the church, is to change the world. We read these three readings from this weekend. Draw together these three lessons about the life of the church and find great confidence in the fact that it is the Holy Spirit, the advocate, who still guides us and still leads us. And God bless you.
0: I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.
1: Father Robert Barron is combating the crisis of faith in our culture. Father Barron's expanded website can deepen your faith, give you new insights into Scriptures, and help you become a better Christian. Go to wordonfire.org and tap into Father Barron's compelling videos, sermons, articles, and much more. Wordonfire.org. Connect with one of the Catholic Church's best messengers every day, everywhere.